0: make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Happy Friday, Food Junkies listeners. I could not be more excited for this episode. Today, we have the incredible Dr. Emily August. Emily is an Associate Professor of Literature at Stockton University. She holds a PhD in English from Vanderbilt University and an MFA in creative writing from the University of Minnesota. As a longtime body liberation proponent, she focuses on the human body in her research and writing. Emily seeks to understand how a very narrow, specific version of the body became the authoritative medical standard defined as healthy and normative and how this standard continues to impact clinical practice and societal power relations. Since embarking on her recovery journey in 2017, she has passionately advocated to de-stigmatize abstinence. She practices a body-neutral, body-inclusive approach to abstinence-based food addiction recovery. She currently divides her time between Lake Superior's North Shore and the Atlantic Ocean's Jersey Shore. Today we get deep. Molly and I left this interview feeling so empowered in our recovery choices, and we know you will too. Emily helps us explore, what is recovery? The diet culture saturated environment we live in. Addiction as a health management condition, ableism. How we can recognize addiction as a chronic health problem and that chronic health conditions aren't curable. They aren't shameful and we don't have to problematize them as something to be fixed or solved. We also discuss fat liberation, fat acceptance, how the world we live in views abstinence, and how we can learn the language to build acceptance around it. You will probably have to listen to this episode twice, maybe three times. We actually talk about the inherent power of repeated messages. Whatever you do, don't miss the message by comparing yourself to what Emily speaks to. Recovery is about connection, not comparison. And stay tuned. Halfway through the episode, we tell you more exciting details about our next sweet sobriety workshop, emotional eating. It could be our most exciting one yet. Enjoy the show. Welcome, everyone, to the Food Junkies podcast. I'm here with Dr. Emily August. Welcome, Emily.
1: Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I really, I really appreciate this conversation.
0: Yeah. So, can you share with us a little bit about your own personal journey and kind of your aha moment when you realized that food addiction was your truth? Yes,
1: absolutely. So, my story really goes back to early childhood. I have memories as a toddler of binging, of putting myself in danger in order to access food and secretly binge on it. And that's kind of, you know, has been a theme for me since early childhood and just binge episodes that increased in duration and frequency the older I got and the sort of more independent I got where my food environment was sort of less opportunity dependent and and more independent. By the time I was, uh, I started kind of experimenting with sort of expanded substance abuse starting in junior high. And by high school, I was, you know, drinking, smoking, cigarettes, doing drugs as regularly as I could. And so that, you know, that chronic progression also sort of incorporated more substances as well. And so I also had a kind of parallel, you know, mental health journey alongside of that, right? Mental health struggles. I was diagnosed with anxiety disorder and panic attacks in like sixth or seventh grade. So really early still, but I could trace my anxiety all the way back to early childhood. I vividly remember my very first panic attack in kindergarten. I was taking a test, an an entrance test to to an elementary school and almost blacked out with panic. And really my entire life experience was dominated by anxiety, panic attacks, and OCD pretty much into my early thirties. I was also in therapy at a pretty early age on and off. I came from a household that, you know, valued inner work, that encouraged self-examination and that viewed kind of psychological health as like a, a part of a holistic health approach. And so from my experiences in therapy, I had a, at least a sort of child's understanding of the kind of psychological and emotional dimensions of my behavior that I understood at least in some small way that I was self-medicating my anxiety disorders and mood disorders. But I didn't really have the emotional maturity to kind of do anything about that or care. <laughs> and it just didn't, you know, it didn't solve the addictive eating and the substance use. So the older I got, the more frequent and intense my binging became. And, you know, really just the classic presentation of binge eating disorder. Zoning out, rapidly consuming massive quantities of food to the point of physical agony. You know, wash, rinse, repeat. And of course, alongside this, I was always living my life, you know, pursuing friendships and romantic relationships and hobbies and personal growth. And, you know, every so often I would try to address my eating through, through measures that we would now refer to as either intuitive eating or moderation or harm reduction, because I didn't know any better. And so I just kind of watched how other people ate and and tried to be like, maybe that's how you're supposed to eat. Um, And obviously that would never last long, maybe a couple of, couple of weeks or months. And then I'd be back into binging for months or years. And so by my late 20s I kind of had this epiphany that this is just how my body is made for whatever reason I couldn't eat in a normative typical fashion and I was tired of of trying and I just stopped worrying about my consumption and just sort of made peace with binge eating disorder. And by that time, definitely by my late teens or early 20s, I identified as somebody with binge eating disorder. I understood that sort of clinical dimension of my experience and that really rang true for me, but I just didn't have the language of food addiction at that time. And so after kind of accepting binge eating disorder, My condition became progressive and eventually kind of took over my life. I cut out almost all people and activities. I went to work. I came home. I got drunk and I binged, and it kind of became my life for many, many, many years. And my quality of life just became abysmal. And I just sort of stopped participating in the world. And so I went back to therapy really for my mental health at that point. I was so depressed and my anxiety disorders were out of control. And I I had a lot of health problems at that time, physical health problems as well. And also kind of low key to see one more time if there was anything I could do about the bingeing. And so my therapist and I did tons of amazing work together. We did EMDR, we did CBT, we did IFS parts work, we did kind of traditional talk therapy. It was amazing, it was healing, it was, you know, valuable and brilliant, but none of it touched the eating. And that's when she, my therapist, introduced me to the concept of food addiction and the model of abstinence-based recovery. And that for me, I mean, this was an easy sell for me. It was an instant revelation. I understood immediately that that was my condition in my life experience. I had, back when I was a teenager and I was first kind of developing substance abuse problems, I went to AA for a year. I did outpatient treatment and then went to AA. So I already had a kind of percolating in the background. I'd already had a familiarity with 12-step culture, with with the idea of addiction and recovery. So it just wasn't I didn't have a, a kind of resistance that perhaps a lot of people do upfront and sort of like addiction and like people with addiction had been humanized to me through that experience. Like I was in rooms with people recovering from addiction. And so it just, that wasn't a big deal to me. I also grew up in a chronic household with chronic illness. My mom was chronically ill from childhood, from my childhood. And so I also grew up around the idea that people have chronic illnesses, that they are still Valuable and interesting and fascinating and worthy of love and humanity. And that, you know, chronic illness to me was always destigmatized because the person I loved most in the world was chronically ill and would never be healthy. Like, I never grew up with that kind of idea that like, oh, chronic illness is a shameful problem that has to be solved. It was always just really neutral for me. So, you know, accepting that I was an addict and accepting that addiction was a chronic illness, a chronic progressive illness was like a really easy sell for me. It was a huge relief to finally have language around that and to finally learn about like my neurochemistry. And I was so ready to embrace that. And I was absolutely ready to embrace abstinence as the management tool for that. I had to do a lot of inner work to get there. Like we all do. But my aha moment was literally just my therapist being like food addiction exists. And like abstinence is a management tool for it. And I was like, Oh my God, thank you. You know, how did that
2: then transfer or or become this passion that you have now for speaking about recovery to anybody who will listen? Because we know you've been on summits and you've been on podcasts. I mean, you're with us now. So yeah, how did that kind of come together?
1: So absolutely. So. I leaped into the, you know, food addiction recovery program that was suggested to me. Well, I mean, leaped in is 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 an exaggeration. With measured a measured leap because when I started studying 12 step based and other kind of abstinence based recovery programs, it became clear to me that it wasn't going to be a great cultural fit for me. It was going to be a great kind of health management strategy, but I was honestly shocked at the degree of diet culture and really dismayed at the weight focus that I encountered, which really went against my politics and my values. So here is perhaps where I should also mention that I grew up in a very body-neutral, fat-acceptance home environment. It was a very safe, protective, empowering space. We didn't weigh ourselves. We didn't have a body scale. We didn't focus on, like, weight or body size or physical appearance even. Um, We didn't, like, nitpick what an outfit looked like when we put it on or something like that. And so I was really quite privileged. I see it as a massive privilege to have grown up in this kind of a household where, you know, I grew up believing that fat bodies are just as valuable and beautiful and powerful and deserving of love and pleasure and professional success and civil rights as other any other bodies. And so I kind of had walked through the world this whole time with that kind of ideology around fat liberation, fat acceptance body neutrality, body positivity, really any, any of those terms and approaches that circulate in the culture were very kind of native to me as a person. So I got to 12-step recovery and it was like, and I didn't go to OA or FA. I went to like a private recovery program that was both grounded in 12 steps, but also focused on weight loss, you know, and I certainly didn't go for weight loss. I went because my quality of life was horrible and I was chained to food and food had taken over my entire life and so it was a highly disturbing for me to encounter and like now i look back and it's so naive like i guess i should have expected that so there wasn't really a place for me as far as my values in my recovery program with that intense focus on weight loss and maintaining a particular body size. And, you know, most of the people in the community had, you know, come from, I mean, we live in a diet culture saturated environment and we were all here in this world. And so getting together a group of, you know, thousands of people together concentrated with that mentality, it was difficult to navigate that for me. But then on the flip side, as I dove deeper into other kinds of recovery cultures, I realized that, you know, clinical eating disorder protocol, the intuitive eating movement had a range of responses to abstinence, but certainly none of them were <laughs> do it. You know, there's some open hostility. There's some just suspicion of abstinence. Overall, it seems that there's a different approach in the, in the sort of clinical and intuitive eating world. And so that wasn't really a cultural fit for me either or rather it wasn't a, it wasn't a health management fit for me. It was more of a cultural fit because more of my values and ideologies existed in, in the kind of intuitive eating movement. So really I just focused on kind of building my own recovery based in abstinence and based in inner work and kind of recovery wisdom and recovery principles that divorced from diet culture and kind of thinking about weight loss, you know, a weight neutral environment and just kind of every so often sort of putting myself out there in my, Program and in my community and being like, this is where I'm coming from. Anyone want to hang out? And sort of starting to collect like-minded people very slowly. And yeah. And so I just gradually over time got really excited about raising awareness around around addiction, around abstinence. And you know, I'm I'm one of the only people that I had met, you know, it for many years in my recovery program. I was kind of. Doing this thing on my own, and one of the only people I'd met that had consistent, uninterrupted sobriety, had a vibrant recovery program of abstinence, and who literally did not engage with weight. And I was like, I feel like, A, I need more people like this around me. And so starting to put myself out there to be like, where are we? Let's join up. And B, I just saw this as a service that I feel like is needed in our contemporary sort of recovery climate.
0: Well, Emily, I'm so glad that you did decide to get loud, share your truth, and try to find your people because it was on Florence's Kick Sugar podcast that I heard you then sent Molly the podcast and immediately reached out with you to connect. Molly and I have been having these types of conversations all the time on our own, and it is and has been a message we try to convey to our clients, and that also deeply connects us to our souls. We truly believe that all recovery programs can be enhanced when clients are willing to explore their own truth and connect with their own values. So the three of us connected had a hugely inspiring conversation, which we should have recorded, by the way, but are attempting to replicate today. So in the spirit of that conversation, I'm curious. Let's talk about abstinence and the language we use around abstinence. When we hear the word abstinence, it can almost seem like punitive or really negative. How do you help people reframe abstinence? How can we sell abstinence? <laughs> uh,
1: absolutely. My whole approach to Recovery in general, to abstinence based recovery in general, has been about radical absolute neutrality, body neutrality, addiction neutrality, and abstinence neutrality. As kind of, you know, I think everything starts in body neutrality, which doesn't mean body erasure, right? It doesn't mean let's evacuate ourselves from our bodies and, you know, just deny the body, but really truly means body acceptance. It means no longer viewing the body as a moral, instrument or as an aesthetic object. The body isn't good or bad. It's not right or wrong. It's not beautiful or ugly. It literally just exists. It just exists. It comes in various shapes, sizes, presentations, and even abilities. And yes, the body has been a site of social discipline and control and and repression and, and all of these things. All these ideologies get filtered through the body, but we don't have to accept that. Like we don't have to participate in that and we don't have to perpetuate that. I really, an advocate of a sort of, almost like a Buddhist adjacent sort of non-attachment, like an acceptance of what is without judgment. And that that's the sort of attention that we train on our bodies is that they exist and that there isn't anything inherently anything about them. I also count, and I promise this is leading into into abstinence. I also talk a lot about even training a focus away from function. A lot of people, when they start off with body neutrality, make the jump into function. Like, you know, I don't have to like or hate my body. It's about what my body does for me. And like appreciating that my body, you know, can take me on a hike up a mountain or can, you know, do various things for me. And for me, it's important, again, growing up with a chronically ill parent and just kind of having a heightened awareness of kind of disability politics and the politics of accessibility, it's important to me that to remember that, like, not all human bodies have, there's a spectrum of ability and a spectrum of function. And so there isn't anything particularly heroic or an achievement about, you know, like some bodies are never going to climb a mountain or climb stairs. And for me, that can't be that then can't be a barometer of like recovery then like, Oh, I'm in recovery because now I can climb stairs or tie my shoes. And I couldn't before. So that's kind of a, also a part of the body neutrality that I practice is really a kind of disability informed non-attachment to function. And from there, you know, moving into addiction neutrality. I think, I don't know for certain, but I feel like addiction neutrality either has to come before abstinence neutrality or paired with abstinence neutrality. And so when I say addiction neutrality, I mean, let's remove the, you know, the moralizing, the shame, the guilt, the secrecy around addiction. And, you know, we've got a pretty decent cultural movement at this point happening around that. We've got lots of awareness raising on social media. We've got lots more publicity around addiction and just trying to destigmatize and raise awareness that addiction exists and we are slowly increasingly getting that cultural that language into the culture around reframing addiction as simply a chronic health condition that's it that's all it is and if we're if we're health neutral if we're illness neutral you know having a chronic health condition isn't shameful it's not bad it doesn't make us a bad person it's not icky it's not necessarily a you know chronic health conditions aren't curable, so we don't have to problematize ourselves and say, oh, you know my body is something to be solved. Like it's okay, it's it's okay to have a chronic illness. Like human beings have chronic illness, and we have to stop being negative about that. And I think putting addiction in that framework contributes to that destigmatization and that reframing. And then to me, it's not that. You know, it, it, it's a companion move then to introduce abstinence neutrality and to destigmatize abstinence. Now, this we haven't done such a great job at yet. <laughs> we live in a cultural moment, in fact, in which abstinence is incredibly unpopular. It is equated with restriction, with control, with rigidity, with extremism, and I've heard abstinence even being described as an eating disorder in itself. And so. That's very difficult for those of us who practice abstinence and who need to practice abstinence. Now, I do imagine that there are some people in the world who use the tool of abstinence in service of their eating disorder That may, or, or in service of diet culture kind of metrics or goals. And I absolutely recognize that abstinence has a long history of misuse and weaponization by various institutions and continues to be. Um, I can think of plenty of examples in our contemporary Western culture, at the very least, in which abstinence is being weaponized or used to control and oppress particular groups of people or whatnot. But that doesn't make abstinence itself wrong Or bad, or ineffective, or unsustainable. The fact remains that there are populations who require abstinence in order to manage their chronic health conditions, to keep them in remission. And, you know, these populations, not only, and it's not even like, like, oh man, you know, I require abstinence, boohoo. I and many other people have experienced untold empowerment and liberation through using the tool of abstinence. And so it's not just like, You have to have this horrible tool, so we should accept that. It's like, it's actually a conduit for liberation for many, many people. So abstinence isn't going away. It just isn't going anywhere, and it's not inherently bad. And so rather than stigmatizing it and demonizing people who require it, let's pivot towards, you know, cultural criticism of the ways in which it's been misused, absolutely, and sort of clearing up that distinction and lifting up, you know, spreading positive examples of practices of abstinence that are empowering and holistic and and joyful and et cetera. So that to me is what I'm interested in. What I'm really excited about is promoting neutrality around abstinence, promoting a kind of mature, sophisticated cultural criticism and a, a revisioning of abstinence that puts it puts it in its cultural history and in its cultural place.
0: Hey everyone, Clarissa here. I have a quick announcement from Sweet Sobriety about our next workshop starting Wednesday, March 8th at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The topic is emotional eating. And as I have some insider's knowledge as to what Molly is going to be teaching you in this upcoming workshop, I wanted to give you a sneak peek into some things we found most interesting and mind-blowing about emotional eating that Molly's looking forward to helping you with. First of all, emotional eating is the solution, not the problem. We are wired to eat when in sympathetic response. It has been researched for 40 years, and yet we still don't fully understand it. So rather than you going through all the research, Molly has done this for us and highlighted the most important findings and tools that you can concentrate your emotional eating recovery on. The University of Maryland actually researched and found that 75% of overeating is due to emotions. Several other bodies of work indicate that emotional eating, you know, eating to soothe, um, basis of negative reinforcement-driven eating may actually be more resistant to change than that cue-driven eating that we see when we're triggered and cued by our addictive foods in the environment. So individuals with food addiction and emotional eating may need to do a little more extensive work on emotional regulation and deeper psychological issues. So in this workshop, we're going to help you get there. We're going to start with helping you recognize your own emotions because our difficulty in identifying these feelings is associated with emotional eating. We're going to also examine any trauma-based symptoms you may have that could be contributing to slips as we've learned they can play a major role for individuals with food addiction. We're also going to help you explore the connection between early childhood experiences and how you experience connection and hunger. Children who felt safe are able to express their needs and the research shows they can also identify when they are full. We're going to talk about how, when we're overwhelmed with emotions, we prefer to use our mental energy to focus on food rather than, and to distract us from feeling the tough feelings beneath and how our bodies actually crave carbohydrates because of their chemical properties that relax and soothe the body when we're stressed and depressed acting as an upper or how, when we're anxious, our bodies crave fats to soothe the panic acting as a downer. Many of those who Experience emotional eating, live in our head. We are disconnected from the rest of our bodies. We experience emotional abandonment as physical hunger. This workshop aims to help you increase interceptive awareness, the ability to identify, access, understand, and respond appropriately to the patterns of the internal signals you experience. We're going to do this by teaching you body work, breath work, something called reparenting, covering the four pillars. Some cognitive behavioral therapy about catching and reframing our thoughts and addressing our spiritual hunger using the four agreements. What you get with this workshop is hours of pre recorded videos, no expiration, downloaded resources, and suggested at home practices for one hour live support sessions with replay. The cost is $50, and you'll find the link on the Food Junkies website. It's going to be Wednesdays at 2 p.m. starting March 8th, March 15th, 22nd, and 29th. We look forward to seeing you there. So we've been using words like
2: abstinence and addiction and recovery and neutral a lot. And Mm -hmm. I know for me... I can listen to some of these conversations and I, I mean, I'm here, I'm really engaged. I'm with you, but I know sometimes it can get really cerebral. (laughs) And, And so what I'm wondering is, can you kind of flesh out for us when you say abstinence neutral, addiction, neutral, or even, you know, like body neutral, weight neutral, those things, can you give us some idea of like some words that come to mind? Like if I'm using more weight neutral language when I'm speaking with other colleagues or I'm speaking with clients, what would that sound like? Or abstinence neutral language or addiction, you know, what words kind of come to mind for you? How, how are we reframing
1: this in a very real way? That's a big question. I mean, I can start by thinking of some examples in my own, in my own recovery community where like somebody will be talking about their recovery in a way that is like very kind of weight focused. And I might offer a suggestion that is weight neutral. So like somebody will ask a question like, this might not be what you're looking for. So you can re-ask me your question after this. But um, somebody will say like, you know, how many ounces of tofu am I allowed to eat? And so I might offer my experience, which is how (laughs) moving away from adopting and absorbing the punitive language that the mainstream culture has, has like delivered to us, right? Like all of this language around, around allowance, around like accepting that language of restriction for ourselves and the ways in which we kind of perpetuate that language of restriction, which almost exclusively is tied to like, is this going to maintain my weight? Is am I going to lose and maintain weight? Like questions like that to me, like, like how much am I allowed? Or I don't know, I'm not thinking of other examples.
2: No, I think that's a really great example because I think Clarissa and I run into that a lot. So what would be, you know, I know how I respond to those individuals and usually it's, I, I ask more questions. I don't give a response because- Exactly, yeah. It's none of my business. I You don't need my permission to eat food. Like, hello, yeah. you're a human being. You should just get to eat food. But I'm just wondering, like, what would be, you know, I'm curious. I'm trying to learn myself, you know, what what might be a more neutral way
1: I to see. respond. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what I do for myself, and so what I share with others about what I do, is that I always return to the science. So for me, what has been really useful in remaining neutral around my recovery is to think about the body chemistry, the neurochemistry, and sort of the science of addiction. That, to me, has been like a very neutral set of terms that helps inform my decision making around what it looks like to be abstinent, to craft an abstinent food plan, an abstinent lifestyle. And so like a lot of people will ask, like, you know, in traditional food addiction recovery for those folks who are kind of encountering these concepts for the first time, probably not many in the audience, but many abstinence programs eliminate sugar and sweeteners, flour, and then measure quantities and eat only at mealtimes. And so I always kind of reroute back to the science of that, like the latest science around why we consistently bound our quantities is about reinforcing the absence of having to make decision-making on the fly so that we can free up the the willpower that that takes and use it for other things in our life so that we're not draining our willpower. Reminding people of the science that that is completely unrelated to to weight loss or, or weight maintenance. And that's how I make decisions around why I bound quantities. Or the fact that the science is about a consistent quantity decisions. It's up to me what that quantity is. And I'm not looking to tailor quantities that put me in as tiny of a body as possible. So I'm not trying to eat four ounces of tofu in a meal. I can't even imagine being satiated by that quantity. I did embark on a a process of intuitive food plan within abstinence. So observing all the abstinent lines, never crossing my abstinence but, but really training and attention on my body as to, you know, what, what quantities are right for me, what quantities do fuel me, how many meals does my body require per day, and then just, you know, maintaining consistency with that, rather than like, what can I do to be as skinny as possible? Like, how many grains of rice can I shave off of my lunch or whatever?
2: And I think again, exactly. And that's how we respond. Um, the the spirit is there, right? Is the like, well, what feels what fuels you, what feels good? Are you tired after you eat that quantity? Does it give you energy? Are you hungry within a few hours? Right. There are all kinds of questions that we can start to ask to become more neutral around it.
0: Yeah.
2: I think the real struggle comes when like I just can't. Like sometimes I wish, and this may be a little adolescent thinking of me and that's fine, but sometimes I wish that we were like real life Harry Potter. we like, you know, with the wand and they like take certain memories out of people's minds, right? And sometimes I wish I could do that and take that piece out where it's all about the weight because the spirit of the question, like you said, is often how can I be in the tiniest body possible? So it becomes tricky when we're having these conversations because I'm in the spirit of neutrality of just fuel your body. You know, this is about being able to have quality of life kind of, you know, that's the hope, right? Meanwhile, their brain is like, yeah, yeah, Molly, like, just tell me what I want to hear so that I can get that right. So that I can lose the most weight possible. And so I don't know how to like remove that for people. And maybe it's just showing up and having these kinds of conversations of, you know, is that getting you anywhere? Is that actually getting you closer to that tiny body? Or would it be more helpful, more loving, more safe to have conversations around, or that sound more neutral? And I don't know, I guess that's really kind of the big question that I think Clarissa and I constantly have is, you know, it's one thing to work with clients on that, but we're also up against eating disorder professionals and food addiction professionals, right? We're trying to bridge that that yeah. gap. But we come up against both with this very polarizing language yeah. and we're not really sure how to curb that. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on that based on what you've been doing with your community.
1: Yeah. So there's the question of kind of like, how do we bridge these polarized worlds? And then the question of like, kind of what language yeah, is absolutely. most, most can can like most bring neutrality into the room. And, you know, what I've discovered over the five and a half years I've been in my community is it it may not surprise you to, to hear that. Like I came in with significantly less tolerance of where people were at with diet culture in part, because like I ran in different circles, you know, like most people had a lot more exposure to kind of mainstream diet culture ideas than I did. I grew up in a fat positive household. I, I was always drawn to like super progressive circles of and niches of society. Like I was surrounded by language that just wasn't that language. And so for me, it was a huge culture shock, not only to be surrounded by a community of people like rehearsing this language, but to realize, honestly, it was my mid thirties before I really realized that the mainstream really <laughs> is that still like I really hadn't even quite understood the sort of degree of that I kind of every time I would like watch a movie or a commercial I kind of just assumed that we were all doing that internal thing of like oh that's dumb you know or like Ugh, that's diet culture that's so toxic and realizing that the vast majority of people were just really just coming from a different place than I was and so at first I was like really frustrated and then I was like man, like people are really hurting. Like this is not great. And I have the privilege of having come from an environment that was radically different. And I'm certainly not going to help anybody by just not having tolerance with where they're coming from. And so I eventually came around a bit to what what you're saying, which is that I think people respond better. And, you know, I'm a college professor. I work with people in their late teens and early twenties who are encountering new ideas for the first time and oftentimes ideas that are very much opposed to the worldview that they've held up until now. And so I've also had a long time to develop skills around like, how do you get people from one place to another in a really compassionate way that is going to enhance their learning rather than shut it down? And I really do think, Molly, what you said about This is such a boring answer that people don't want to hear because it's not like a magic pill, but it really is about just gradual consistency and repetition, just continuing to show up to use the language to repeat the same idea. There are things I literally have an archive of everything I've ever written in my community on social media in our little group. There are things I said four years ago that I repeated verbatim four years later that just hit differently. You know what I'm saying? you know, repetition is never, is never just plain repeating. That's how, it's how we learn. And we hear it differently every time. And and we hear it differently from different sources. And so I think, and people are so wounded, you know, and everybody is trying to survive. And especially early recovery is so vulnerable and it's so painful. It's an open injury and it's a very gentle time. And so I think people just can take Small pieces of information at a time slowly and gradually, I think, and just keep showing up with the language and referring to I I refer a lot to what has worked for me and what my value system is.
2: I'm really wondering, though, like, would you say that's the same for not only the clients that we work with, but also the colleagues and the other professionals that we just stay true to our message, to our belief system, to how we see is, you know what I mean? Like, does that ring true no matter who we're talking to and, and how we're trying to decrease the stigma and increase the awareness and get people the help that they need? Or is that mostly true for our clients?
1: Yeah, that's a great distinction. I think being a professional in a field, in what I will call a healthcare field or a health and wellness field does come with a bit more responsibility and a bit more urgency. I think we are at a time, I think we are at a moment when professionals are ready to hear some language that's a bit more bald because we're at the point now of just doing harm. you know there are there are people who require who require abstinence. and there are people, see to me, all of this neutrality, right? the body neutrality, the addiction neutrality, the abstinence neutrality, What that's all leading toward is exposing the ableism inherent in recovery cultures right now, and then increasing accessibility, addressing that ableism to increase accessibility. So when we gaslight people with the condition of food addiction by telling them that food addiction doesn't exist or that abstinence is restriction or that it can just be therapized away, like you just need one more therapeutic breakthrough and then you'll magically be at peace with food. Or when we characterize chronic illness as being inherently negative, or when we stigmatize abstinence rather than, you know, et cetera, what we're doing is creating barriers to healthcare access. We're barring people from accessing the empowering, liberating healthcare that they need in order to flourish to their capacity. And we have to do better. We are at a moment where we can do better. And it's urgent now. Addiction of all kinds is, um, I I don't, you know, people say it's on the rise. I don't know if it is on the rise or if we're just seeing it more and calling it more. Either way, We needed, I believe, as a culture, we needed several decades. And body liberation has been going on since at least the 60s, the 1960s. So this is not a new thing, right? We've had several decades now and several generations of activism around body liberation and around body social justice and so whatever healthcare management strategies were serving that it was necessary to turn away from harmful language to turn to kind of like give abstinence a break right and we're at a place now where we have the social justice tools and we have to bring them to abstinence it's now urgent it's no longer appropriate to pretend that we can't do that
0: Oh, Emily, I love your passion, your language and your outside of the box thinking when it comes to these recovery principles. Let's give abstinence a break. These conversations are so critical and can seem to divide us from time to time. By making this a more health informed and progressive approach to removing the barriers, that people experience when trying to access the liberation of abstinence is, I think, the most appropriate abstinence forward movement message I've heard in a long time. So thank you for that. I'm curious if you're someone who has experienced this personally or maybe among peers or even among people you've supported in recovery. We in Sweet Sobriety have almost 100 members now, and both Molly and I in our private practices have noticed that tendency toward comparison. I might be comparing my recovery to someone else's. Am I doing it right? Am I doing enough? I'm not doing what they are doing. I actually just spoke about this in our sweet sobriety group yesterday when we were talking about like our recovery non-negotiables and that they can't be compared because they're not better or worse, but to adopt the language of just being different. For example, like I use the analogy of my two favorite places to visit, Siesta Key, Florida and Charleston, South Carolina. They each have their own culture and are both amazing in their own unique way. Siesta Key has its beaches and manatees and sea turtles and fresh ocean air. And Charleston has this like rich history, very charming architecture, pleasant weather, amazing cuisine, and these this signature smell of jasmine when it's in season. In both places, I walk around all day taking in sights, sounds, but Charleston can never be Siesta Key and Siesta Key can never be Charleston. To compare them would actually be a disservice to each of them. One is not better or worse. They are just different. Yet in our society, we are constantly comparing. How do we as individuals, how do we turn inward? How do we stop this comparison process? Because we know comparison truly is the thief of joy. That's such a great
1: question, So I had sort of the weird experience of kind of being on an island, putting together a recovery program kind of on my own in a lot of ways and sort of building up a recovery program taken from lots of different sources of wisdom that sort of worked for me. And so in like almost counterintuitively that isolated me a little bit from comparison, right? It was just like, I kind of didn't have anything to compare my recovery to. I just, kept trying to learn about the science of addiction, about the science of abstinence. I kept trying to learn about what were the core truths of the 12 steps that like, like that wisdom, that, that inner work that had to be done. What were some other traditions, philosophical and wisdom traditions that were going to help me put my old life, you know, in the ground and, and rebuild a life in the shape of of recovery. And so there wasn't a lot to compare it to. I will say one of the things that I have struggled with. <laughs> this is this is kind of a, an offbeat answer, but hey, that's my that's my my vibe. There are certain aspects of twelve step of traditional twelve step culture that that I really struggle with. In particular, I struggle with certain aspects of the anonymity and the sort of uncompensated emotional labor that twelve step recovery runs on and, and is crucial to recovery. Like I very much believe that that is a crucial component of recovery, that long-term sustainable recovery includes a vibrant support network and vibrant service opportunities. It's just that we live in a world in which there are groups of people who have done uncompensated emotional labor for all of human history, and it just hits a little differently. And so I'm not sure if that's like ego or sort of healthy political critique. And I can get caught up in sorting that out. Does that make sense or not yet? I, I'm being I, a little arch. I realize <laughs> a little circumspect.
2: Sure. So, so taking it just a little bit deeper. So that's certainly been been your process. And it's again, it's you are a very big thinker, right? You see the world from a very macro level, and you can yeah. see it from a very micro level. And I wonder for you know, our listeners, just how can they apply that to themselves? Like what? Yes. Like you said, you're reading the science, you're doing this, like, how do they start to learn how to do this for themselves when they don't necessarily have a background like you have, or like I have, or Clarissa.
1: So like, how do they make this process their own? Oh, That's what you mean by comparison.
2: Yes. Is that what you're asking? Where they're comparing themselves to others as far as like, oh, you know, they're doing this, so I need to do that. Yeah. But being able to take that step back and go, whoa, whoa, whoa.
1: Yeah. Got it. Okay. So one of the things that I advise or that I do, I'll say one of the things that I do that's been really useful for me is to read widely or expose myself widely to different kinds of recovery, different wisdom different traditions also also expose myself widely across addiction experiences like i follow tons of youtube channels of people who interview practicing addicts and recovering addicts. And I don't discriminate like, oh, that person's addicted to meth. Like that doesn't have anything to do with my experience. I absolutely believe that addiction, you know, manifests very similarly. And every single interview I've ever listened to from someone who is either actively addicted to, you know, heroin or meth or recovering, like their story is the same as mine more or less. And so that's one way of getting to know yourself Getting honest with yourself and starting to destigmatize addiction to yourself and starting to destigmatize abstinence to yourself. And just learning, right? I mean, this process, you know, there's no easy answer to this. To build a life of recovery, you have to learn about yourself. You have to be brutally honest with who you are, with what you're afraid of, right? And with what this takes, with what this requires, which is, you know, abstinence is a type of death. It is saying goodbye to a way of life that you practiced. And building something new that you don't know what it's going to look like yet. And no matter how many times people can tell you and reassure you, you don't really know what it's going to be like until you do it. And that is real. And that is difficult. That's, that's full of grieving. And that just has to be done. There's not a hack to that, right? And so to build that recovery for yourself from the ground up, you know, reading across traditions, exposing yourself to the stories of, of people addicted and people in recovery, You know, engaging in sustained self-examination, you know, being honest with what you're afraid of, being honest with what your grief is, exploring who you are as a person without substances, having that curiosity about yourself and your life as you, as you build a different life, as you build a new life and taking the wisdom that you know, is true for you. You know, I, I know, I know for a fact, I know myself when I started abstinence recovery, I was 35 years old. I had watched myself cycle through so many addictive substances. I know exactly who I am. I know that if I pick up a cigarette by the end of the month, I'm going to be smoking a pack of cigarettes a day again, no matter how much wishing and tra la la it's not, it's never going to be different than that. So I think just practicing a kind of honesty and honing your intuition, this is a lifestyle. It's not just a checklist of kind of like things you can eat and things you can do. I'm wearing my Apple watch. I've got my steps. Like, that's great. That's the outer work. That's fine. Whatever structures you need to put in place to maintain a robust recovery. But this is a slow, deep, rich process.
2: Yeah, I think, and I think the thing that I I love what you said is, as I think, I see so much of my own journey in exactly what you just described. But I think too, a lot of our clients get caught up in the noise. And I think the piece that you really pulled out for me that, cause I've always been trying to figure out like, okay, what was, how did I do it that made it different than what my clients are experiencing? Like what, what is the disconnect here? And the thing that I'm hearing you say though, is you knew, right? Or you're figuring out who you are and you're weighing that information, that science, those stories, whatever information it is that you're getting, you're weighing that against who am I? What are my belief system? You know, mm. what do I believe? What are my values? What do I know to be true for me? And then you're making it your own. You're, you're yeah. parceling together this thing, like yeah. the, this jigsaw puzzle. And it's slowly but surely becoming your recovery. And like you said, you have these things that you're doing, right? Maybe you're following a way to measured food plan, timed meals, Maybe you're wearing your Apple watch and you're getting in your steps and you're doing your stairs, you're doing all these things. Right. But I think it's really important to distinguish that is not recovery. Right. Those are actions that we take to get us closer to where we want to be. But they're tools at the end of the day, just like abstinence is a tool. Yeah. Medication is a tool. Those are tools. Recovery is, is that work that you were just describing, like checking out the world, like expanding and pushing against these small ideas that we've I mean hello that's that's normal that's human I'm not trying to like sound judgy at all like but being willing to be curious and say could this person's experience with methamphetamine be similar to mine mm. with sugar flour processed foods and if so you know what is their story and and can i relate and and does that expand my mind in some way and then where does that take me next and i just i just really appreciate your willingness to to speak to that because that, that bridged a gap for me for sure. And and because I get that, I get asked that question a lot, right? People will say like, well, how have you done it for five years and not fallen off the wagon? And I'm like, I never, I never said I wanted to be on a wagon. Like my story is just not like one day I woke up and I'm going to be abstinent. It was, I've just been curious, like something's not right. Yeah, Something isn't working for me. Right. So I've just tried these different things and I've tried to like weigh that against like, does that fit for me? Does that not fit for me? Is that who I am or not? And I've had to learn, you know, to hear my own voice. And I think, you know, speaking of traditional 12-step things that are hard to stomach is, and, and this isn't true in all programs and it's not true at every meeting you go to, but you know, sometimes the sentiment is you can't trust yourself. Your best thinking got you to where you are. What makes you think your best thinking is going to get you out of this. And that really hurts my heart because my best, you're damn right. My best thinking got me into the world of mess that I was in. And that was the bad news. But the good news was I also got myself out of it. Right. I didn't, rely on some other person to tell me what to do with my life. I had that. I had enough of that and and it contributed to the mess that I was in. But finding that way and knowing who we are and being able to weigh that against, like I knew that was not my path, right? Like I couldn't yeah. do the traditional 12 step thing where I had a sponsor that was going to show up and be prescriptive. And it sounds like you maybe found something similar, you know, and mm. maybe not. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but I do I'm so loving this this conversation because it's definitely I don't feel so alone. I want to know more. Like, I want to learn about, you know, the, the ableisms and the, the different cultural perspectives that I just don't have those lived experiences that you have. And I think, again, listeners, right, this is this is your opportunity. Like, seek more information in a very cautious way, a very careful way, right? Like, what makes the most sense to you and your morals, values, belief systems, and How, you know, if you want to be more neutral with your language, if you want to be more neutral with your body, if you want to divorce this idea of your body being an instrument instead of an ornament kind of thing, you know, that we need to be listening to the Dr. Emily August of the world. Like we need, right, we need to continue to ask these kinds of questions because I think they're important questions that aren't being asked enough right? We're so busy okay. squabbling over eating disorder, not eating disorder, abstinence is eating, right? We're so busy squabbling about that, that we are not, I don't think that either camp is doing a good enough job yeah. actually helping people exist in this space of recovery. Yeah, You know, like it should be, that should be our goal. But instead we're like, you know, I don't know, weigh your b- food, don't weigh your food. Like, it's all noise. That's noise. Yeah. That's noise. And I just really appreciate your willingness to come here today and have like maybe a bit more of a meta type conversation, you know, that it, there's so much more to life than what our body looks like, what it weighs on a scale what size clothing we're wearing, whether or not we can hike a mountain. And I think that the medical world is guilty of promoting a lot of this baloney these days too on social media. I think that you know nobody is immune to it. It's showing up everywhere. We're not going to make it go away. But what I'm hearing you say is we can just get really curious and we can test these things out and learn and grow and know that it's not like a destination that this is a journey a lifelong journey there's no end until the day we you know are on our deathbed or whatever it might be i don't know i mean hopefully i didn't put a lot of words in your mouth but that's that has definitely been my takeaway from this conversation and i just so appreciate i just so appreciate it it and you
1: oh that was so beautiful thank you for that absolutely that was just absolutely a hundred percent that is exactly what I mean to say, and, and you so eloquently spoke that, and I appreciate it so much. Yeah, what is, what is true for being curious about who you are, what's true for you, and just being honest about your lived experience. Are you a person with a lived experience who might require abstinence? Are you a person with the lived experience of a chronic illness? If that's the case, neutrality, practicing neutrality means... You exist. And so it's fine. It's all fine. Building up a lifestyle from that base, the base that, like, what you require for your healthcare management is fine.
0: Oh, Emily, I love those questions for our listeners to reflect on. So, as you know, we have a signature question. And it is if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about food addiction, what would it be? So, I would tell myself,
1: you are an addict. You require abstinence. You can do it. It is humanly possible to sustain abstinence and your life will be thoroughly joyous, content, and more manageable because of it. It's a
0: better life for you. Perfect. So great. Thank you so much for being here, Emily.
1: Thank you both. This was such such a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you.